John Oliver, in a lot of ways, has become the standard bearer for the Democratic Party. He is somebody who is appreciated a lot by liberals, loved by the progressive left, and he completely forwards the Democratic Party agenda by talking about how the solution to everything is federal government intervention, more government spending, more regulations, and even if he disproves his own notions during the course of his segments, like we'll talk about today, he still ultimately ends up doubling down on them by the end of the segment. And he does does this all with an unparalleled sense of unearned moral superiority over the people that he's talking about that you can tell through every word that he says he shows a complete and utter disdain for my favorite john oliver segment which we're not going over today is the one that he did in and around the build back better plan where john oliver made the case that inflation was no big deal and somehow spending government money running up deficits for republican priorities is actually bad for america and will cause negative consequences but Passing the Build Back Better plan won't cause any inflation or any negative consequences at all because what you go into debt for is totally fine. Modern monetary theory, what even is inflation? Don't worry about it. But today, we're not going to be talking about that. Today, we're going to be talking about a John Oliver segment that he did on rent because John Oliver repeatedly disproves his own ideas and his own policy prescriptions without even realizing it. It is amazing to watch, so we're going to get into it. We're going to go over it, but before before we get into that, we need to talk about today's sponsor, Keto with Justice. Keto with Justice transition. Keto with Justice. It is no secret that many people across this country are struggling with weight. However, it's not all your fault if you're one of these people. It's hard, and what makes it harder is that your metabolism actually slows down after age 20 by about 4% a year, meaning by the time that you're 50, you've lost 10% of your metabolism speed. One of the things to help kick that back into gear is this amazing powder with Keto Elevate. It's over at Keto with Justice, and I highly recommend it. This can help supplement a keto diet. It can help give you some of the effects of a keto diet. And it's an amazing price point at KetoWithJustice.com. Get yours before it sells out. It has sold out before. KetoWithJustice.com, my link, pinned comment, and in the top of the description. Tonight, skyrocketing rents, forcing a growing number of Americans to think twice about where home is. Rent prices across the country skyrocketing. Rents are rising nationwide. Rents are going way, way up. Yeah, rent is skyrocketing, and that is the last thing that you want to hear is on the rise, along with COVID cases, murder rates, and Henry Kissinger's life expectancy. The median monthly asking rent in the US surpassed $2,000 for the first time last month. That is up 15% since the same time last year, well above the rate of inflation. And it's up over 30% in cities like Cincinnati, Seattle, and Nashville, and nearly 50% in Austin. Now, John opens up by talking about the real issue of rising rental prices throughout the United States and how it is becoming a bigger problem, especially in specific areas like major cities across this nation. Now, we've always had targeted areas that have had dramatic rental increases, which we're going to talk about, but I just want to point out that John Oliver is one of these lefties who did a segment during the time of the lockdowns where he made the case that trying to balance economic concerns with the concerns of the virus was not a thing that we should do. We should definitely do the lockdowns because we need to save lives, and honestly, the economy 
economy will be far worse off if we don't do the lockdowns. Part of the reason why rent is increasing is because the cost of building materials is going up. A bunch of Americans were moving due to the lockdowns because they didn't have to go to the office, so they're moving into areas where the cost of building has dramatically gone up in the whole country, so obviously you're creating a supply and demand crunch. Once again, we have another progressive policy advocated for by John Oliver, and now he's doing a segment about the consequences without acknowledging his role to play in this and his ilk's role to play in this. When he talked about the lockdowns, when he talked about how the economy, which by the way, is just all of us making decisions for ourselves and all of that coming together, that's what a market economy is. You and I and everybody is the market, is somehow opposed to humans and human decision making and the human wants and needs. This was the obvious consequence of it. The hubris that people like John Oliver had, the hubris that politicians had to think that they could deem which part of the economy was essential versus not essential is what led us to that crisis. Never forget it. You or someone you know may well be struggling to find a place right now or are being priced out of where you currently live by your landlord. I'm being priced out of where you currently live by your landlord. Now, you can see we're already shifting responsibility away from the people who advocated for the horrible policies that John Oliver is in favor of to the landlords. The landlords are just pricing you out. All the landlords just got together and said, you know what? Rent, I'm going to raise it so that you can't afford it because haha, in your face. It has nothing to do with supply and demand. It has nothing to do with regulations that constrict supply, thus making the demand out of balance with it. Oh, no, it's all the landlords. They're just pricing you out. They're going up to your face and saying, what do you make? What can you afford? I'm pricing you out. Get out of here, according to John Oliver. But the fact is, rent affordability isn't a remotely new problem. If you live in New York, your city became unaffordable to rent in in 2004. See this line? That line is 30% of what you make. Generally for rent, it's advised you don't spend past that line. But if you live in Miami, you probably passed that line in 2001. And in Chicago in 2012, Los Angeles has been playing unaffordable since before 1979. Rent is growing faster than the money most people make to pay it. So the first thing that you should notice about this chart is that the cities being cited on this chart are left-wing cities. All of them to a T. And for those of you who are going to say Dallas and Houston, those are in right-wing Texas. Notice how they're below the line. And by the way, they are more blue in comparison to the rest of Texas. The second thing that you should notice is that all these cities are cities that experiment with rent control. They have rent regulations, rent stabilization, affordable housing schemes, all the nonsense that John Oliver is going to advocate for during the course of this segment. The third thing that you should notice about this chart is the age range of the people in this chart, ages 22 to age 34. So what John Oliver and this person who made this chart are actually doing for you guys out there on the internet.com is picking a demographic of people in the United States who make the least amount of money and comparing it to the median rent so that they can have more dramatic results. Obviously, you don't make a lot of money in your 20s and into your early 30s. So obviously, rent and all these other expenses, if you're going to rent a loan especially, are going to be a higher percentage of your income than normally. These people in these categories should get themselves some roommates so that they can offset the cost of rent. 
friend. But again, John Oliver doesn't bring that up. He's just talking about these 22 to 34 year olds as if somehow it's the same all the way through without even mentioning it. You have to actually look at the chart and see what's being represented here. But of course, this is entertainment meant to be consumed passively by the NPCs that watched last week tonight. It's true. Rent is growing faster than wages. It's a problem we've known about for decades and is only getting worse. Now, I said earlier in this video, and you might have thought it was me just being a jerk, that if you can't afford to live on your own, you should rent with roommates because that is a way to offset the cost. And most people who don't have families that are single income earners don't need to live on their own. But think about where John Oliver is versus where I am. In fact, right now, there is not a single county in the US where a worker earning minimum wage can afford a modest two-bedroom rental home. A worker earning minimum wage can afford a modest two-bedroom rental home. He just said that a minimum wage worker in the United States can't rent the average two-bedroom home in any county in the United States of America as if that's some national crisis. You don't need a two-bedroom home to rent if you're making minimum wage and you're a single earner. That doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't you look at one-bedroom homes or better yet, one-bedroom apartments or better yet, studio apartments or better yet, combine two minimum wage earners and split them between a two-bedroom apartment two-bedroom rental home. The level of entitlement in this country is unparalleled. The level of disconnect from people like John Oliver and real people who work everyday jobs is insane. If you're making minimum wage, you're not in the market for a two-bedroom home. It is not the case. Right now on this channel, you're watching a guy who is loaded up to the gills with money. I got all that keto with justice money, and I'm super rich. Guess what? I am shooting this video in my bedroom, meaning that I cannot afford to pay for another bedroom so I can have an office in the apartment that I'm at. Think about that. Think about how crazy that is. Think about how insane that is. And I just made that decision because me, as a person who is working from home, didn't think it was economically viable to look for an extra bedroom in this apartment that I was only going to use for work. But according to John Oliver, at minimum wage, and by the way, Keto with Justice money makes me so much richer than minimum wage because I know all of you think that because I do YouTube, I must be loaded. So I'm just going to lean into that. So much richer than minimum wage and apparently i should be looking for at minimum wage a two-bedroom house in any county in the united states of america on top of that it says the average two-bedroom house in any county in the united states of america the idea that you rent only the average is absurd and look there are undoubtedly individual landlords out there who behave decently to their tenants but many others will conveniently blame the market rates for extortionate rent hikes and imply that the decision simply isn't theirs to make just watch financial guru Dave Ramsey try and reassure one landlord who said he felt guilty about raising his rents above what his tenants could afford. If I raise my rent to be market rate, um, that does not make me a bad Christian. Uh, I did not displace the person out of that house if they can no longer afford it. The marketplace did. The economy did. Uh, the ratio of the income that they earned to their housing expense displaced them. I didn't cause any of that. Of course, kicking someone out of your house doesn't make you a bad Christian. It's in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Fuck to the poor in money, for theirs is the kingdom of landlords. Weather! 
So John Oliver, being the hack fraud that he is, actually uses that Dave Ramsey clip that we talked about multiple times on this channel, where somebody was calling into the Ramsey show talking about how the rent doesn't cover the maintenance of the home and he's losing money, but he doesn't want to raise rent on the tenants who have been there and paying on time for a while because he doesn't want to hurt them. And Dave Ramsey said, listen, you are not obligated as a Christian to fall on the sword for your tenants. You are in the business of rental properties to make money. And if the market demands a rental increase because of building shortages and all the other problems that were exacerbated by the policies people like John Oliver specifically advocated for, then you should not let that weigh on your soul. Perfectly sound advice, perfectly reasonable. Now, John Oliver, the non-Christian, the atheist, again, the person with no stake in the game, a third-party observer, is going to say Dave Ramsey's immoral and that landlord's immoral for not falling on the sword for the tenant because John Oliver advocated for a bunch of stupid-ass policies that caused shortages in the United States of America, thus bidding up the price of rental properties. He also advocated for lockdowns, which caused people to flee to non-lockdown states like Tennessee. And by the way, I don't believe in the subject of this video. It was Tennessee I think it was Wisconsin just going from memory and yeah so John shut up and let's start with understanding our current housing supply you'll often hear that high rents are a supply and demand issue basically too many renters not enough units and that is partially true because there are currently not nearly enough affordable units in the US which is a little weird to think about isn't it because if you live in any city you probably see new buildings cropping up all the time called things like Four East or Summit 311 with taglines like luxury urban dwellings driven by design there's almost certainly a coffee shop without a bathroom on the ground floor so I probably love this section of the video almost more than any other part of the video because here you have John Oliver hand-waving away supply and demand which is the actual cause of the housing shortage there's not enough supply due to government regulations prohibiting supply due to a building supply shortage promoted by people like john oliver yes i'm going to keep saying that then he says oh we need more affordable apartment units in the united states and then he pivots to luxury housing not realizing that the regulations that he's going to advocate for throughout the course of this video actually make the supply of housing go down and it incentivizes the building of luxury housing. In the city of New York, where John Oliver films his show, Where I Live, they have this scheme where if you want to build more luxury units, you have to hold a bunch of units in that building for under market value. These would be the rent-stabilized units, and they are stabilized in perpetuity at about 1% rent increases. Now, in New York City specifically, they don't want to stabilize rents for the rich. They don't want to stabilize those luxury apartment rents. So they actually cap the rent amount per month at $2,500 a month for what they can stabilize. And just so you know, if your apartment building exists, it's out there in the world, it could ultimately, over time, fall under rent stabilization, even if it is not initially under rent stabilization, if it's under this threshold. So, if you have those requirements... And you could have your unit effectively seized and the rent held at below market rate in perpetuity if you're under $2,500 a month. You're obviously incentivized to charge way more than that threshold in the city of New York with all your new units that are unregulated. What the effect that this policy actually has on rents in the city of New York is that it incentivizes building for luxury and holding these minimal units within the building. So if you increase the number of affordable units that people have to build, they're just going to build more expensive, more luxury housing, not build housing for everyday Americans or everyday New Yorkers. So what ultimately ends up happening is that there's people who win these houses 
housing lotteries, and they're locked into rent. And over time, by the way, they make way more money than the average New Yorker, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And you have all these luxury units for wealthy people, and middle-class people get priced out of their neighborhood because nothing has been done to increase the overall supply of housing due to the constraints financially on the luxury housing and to the constraints due to regulatory burdens on the quote-unquote affordable housing. And this is true in every single city in every single country where it's been tried. Studies have shown, for example, that the total number of rental units in Cambridge and Brookline, Massachusetts fell by 8% and 12% respectively in the 1980s after they put in rent control requirements. This is while the neighboring areas that had no such rent control actually saw a boom in the number of units built during that time. In California, the total supply of rental units dropped by 14% in Berkeley and 8% in Santa Monica between 78 and 1990, Even though in the nearby areas, those nearby cities, rental properties rose. In the UK, when they imposed rent control after the Second World War, the share of all housing provided through private rental units dropped from 53% in 1950 to less than 8% by 1986, meaning investors fled the market. Now, because there is no incentive for somebody who owns a rent-controlled or rent-stabilized unit to make improvements to the property because they won't get better rents from other tenants, they don't invest in the property. This is why a bunch of them fall into disrepair and supply ultimately ends up dropping. And if you're not within the rent control system, you don't have to make repairs either because the supply and demand is so out of whack, you can charge a lot for less. So rent control not only devastates the supply of rentable units, thus increasing the price overall, it makes the existing rental units worse, unless of course they're the luxury units, which most people can't afford because most people can't afford luxury units. And this serious lack of new affordable housing has enabled landlords to charge higher rents for the units that exist, something that has increasingly attracted institutional investors. These are corporate landlords like private equity firms or even publicly traded companies that pool the rents of their tenants and sell them as investments. They've long been players in apartment rentals, but more recently, after the 2008 housing crash, companies like these popped up to snap up single-family homes and rent them out. And because institutional investors are always trying to maximize returns, they'll take any opportunity to push rents higher. So then, of course, naturally, like all these stupid segments, we end up pivoting to corporate landlords and the talk about how these big businesses are investing in rental properties because they're the only ones who can deal with all the red tape that goes along with rental properties. And the government is essentially crowding out individual landlords from the market with all these restrictions so obviously a corporation based on the regulatory system created is going to use that exploit that to make more money off of it so great job john oliver in advocating for the exact policies that allow companies like this to take over major urban areas so if you are wondering why your rent is going up it may well be because your landlord sees the current affordable housing crisis as a chance to reset market rates And in a lot of the country, there are very few legal constraints to stop them doing that. You may have heard of rent control, which strictly limits how much a landlord can charge you, but vanishingly few people have access to that anymore. More commonly, there's rent stabilisation, which in theory means that on certain older properties, landlords can only raise the rent by a certain percentage per year. But only two states and D.C. require it. 
and more than 30 states have actually passed laws banning it. So then, of course, we move on to rent control and rent stabilization. This, of course, is going to be produced as the solution to rising rent costs in the United States of America. That was the setup with, oh, there's not many restrictions in a lot of places preventing people from raising rents. Now, I need to point out to you guys that rent control is most popular in the United States in cities like New York City and San Francisco, the two highest cities for rent in the United States of America, along with Washington, D.C., where rent control is also popular. So these policies work so great because we all know that those places are so affordable due to the rent control and all that stuff. And even when protections exist, landlords can find ways around them. For instance, they might try and force rent-stabilised tenants out by allowing a property to fall into disrepair or by harassing them with incessant construction until they voluntarily leave. So I want you to think about the setup that John Oliver just gave you. What he's talking about, the rent control or rent stabilization policies actually incentivize in the city of New York before he advocates for them. He's saying that landlords will actually allow their own properties to go into disrepair as a mechanism of pushing rent stabilized or rent controlled people out of their building because it's so unaffordable or unprofitable to keep them in the building just think about that think about what he's saying think about the implications of that before we watch a little bit more of what he's talking about take the rent stabilized tenants who lived in this building in new york their landlord claimed that he was simply upgrading it to improve tenants quality of life but that is not how it felt to them Tenants say they were offered buyouts to leave, but some, like George Manitas and Gretchen Mongrain, who've lived here for almost 10 years, opted to stay. A decision they say came with a warning. Well, if you don't take the buyout, we are going to renovate this, and you are going to have to live through the nightmare of renovation. Mongrain says the unit next to her was demolished with a crowbar. When she asked about the noise and debris left behind... All the person said was, I just want to let you know, there's going to be a lot of rats from now on. You know, it says a lot that they would endure a rat-littered construction site just to hold on to a rent-stabilised unit, because that is not exactly a welcoming message. It is worth noting, when rent-stabilised tenants did leave that building, the asking rents, unsurprisingly, then as much as doubled. So obviously the point of this segment that you're watching, the point of John Oliver including this in the video, is so that you could think, landlord bad, tenants good, these tenants were horrible victims of their landlord, isn't that horrible, isn't that terrible? But I want you to take a real good look at the two people featured in here. And where would you place them in terms of their age range? Now, I would place both of these individuals in the mid-30s to early 30s range. And they've been in the apartment, according to this new segment, for 10 years. And it's a rent-stabilized apartment. Now, a lot of you don't know what a rent-stabilized apartment is. But what that essentially means is that if you sign a year-to-year lease, the landlord can only raise your rent 1.5%. If you sign a two-year lease, then he can only raise your rent after two years 2.5%. So we'll just assume it's a 1.5% increase every year for 10 years. And of course, this building is located in Greenpoint, which means it's 20 minutes from Manhattan, which means it's one of the fastest growing in terms of rental income opportunity areas in the city of New York. And it used to be a horribly ghetto area, so much so that when you watch TV shows written by people who haven't lived in New York in 30 years, they still talk down Greenpoint, even though it's one of the nicer areas. So you have one of the fastest 
fastest increasing areas in terms of property value, in terms of rental income for new buildings where there's construction all over the place. But these people are living in the same rental agreements that they had more or less plus 1.5% every year for 10 years when they were 20 somethings. Now, normally people would move out over time, but obviously when you're in an area like Greenpoint, there's no incentive to move out if you're getting heavily subsidized or heavily discounted rent. Me and my girlfriend actually went to tour a building in Greenpoint in the same area that this building exists. That was a new construction, and if you don't know, the rent-stabilized units have their rents locked in initially when the building opens up, and he told us that the difference from a year over year, if he would open his building one year later from the stabilized units, was about $400, meaning the stabilized price was about $400 that could have been increased. So obviously that 1% increase in rent would be wiped out immediately by a single year for another tenant, but they're not able to do that because of the rent stabilization program. On top of that, you have people that hold down these units over time because their price gets locked in at that certain rate and they're actually disincentivized to move. This also further constrains supply in the city of New York because people who naturally would have moved out of the city end up staying there because of the heavily discounted rent. On top of that, if you're building a building or you own a building, you're disincentivized to build a certain number of units because the New York City government can seize your building for rent control or rent stabilization if you have over six apartment units in your building. So what ended up happening here was that the New York system was so corrupting in terms of its incentive structure that it actually incentivized the landlord in this case to destroy his own property in order to get people out because the rental income that he was generating was so much less than it would cost him to destroy his property and then rebuild it after the fact after they get out. And he was buying out his tenants at first as a mechanism to get rid of them because, again, it was way less profitable for him to accept rent from them rather than pay them a giant lump sum in order for them to move out. Now, I know a lot of you are going to say, oh, well, too bad. You have a natural constitutional right to live in Greenpoint, one of the fastest growing high income areas in the city of New York. It's in the Constitution. It's Amendment 28. But I don't agree. I don't think that if you create all these corrupting incentives that incentivize people to reduce supply, then you're going to have better results. It would be far more affordable if you got rid of the regulations around housing, allowed people to build, and didn't have all these corrupt incentives. On top of that, for those of you who are unaware about who benefits from this situation, and by the way, I mentioned specifically in this video that these people probably rented around the early 20s and are now staying there into their 30s as they're getting higher in terms of their income earning. This is not a coincidence. This is not something that is unusual because what we see time and time again when you look at the rental properties in the city of New York is that the most heavily discounted apartments, which are nice, giant, old apartments that were seized by the city of New York in terms of the stabilization, I consider that a seizure, a taking under the Fifth Amendment that is not compensated for, actually go to the top 25% of New Yorkers. That's right. The average rent in a stabilized apartment for the top 25% of earners in the city of New York is 1650. The median rent in the city of New York is 2700, meaning that the wealthiest New Yorkers who get into these apartments 
are paying over a thousand dollar discount around 40 percent off compared to your average person who didn't get into the system early who didn't hang on to one of these units in perpetuity that just is looking for a place to afford if you were a regular new yorker and you could rent in the heart of manhattan in these luxury neighborhoods for 1650 you would kiss somebody you would think maybe you sold your soul the other day but it turns out the only way for you to do that is to be old earlier in the system when they took all these units because all these programs disproportionately advantage the people who get in early at the expense of other people who are trying to move into the city of new york or who already lived there who didn't get the chance to hold on to one of these heavily discounted units. The sheer amount of scandals surrounding rent-controlled apartments in the history of the city of New York is legendary. You have famous actors who were only in New York part-time that were holding on to rent-controlled apartments. It was discovered in the 2000s that actor Mia Farrow was paying less than $2,500 a month for an 11-room apartment overlooking Central Park that she inherited from her parents that was actually featured in a movie shot by Woody Allen. Cindy Lauper, Miss Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, had the audacity to take New York to court because her rent was $3,250 in an area, by the way, where you could easily pay $10,000 a month to get her rent lowered to $508 for the sweet building that she was in. Now, she didn't get the 508 you know, that was not a huge deal, but she did win in part because that rent that could be $10,000 at market rate was reduced to $989. Not even $1,000 for a suite in the city of New York to Cindy Lauper because she really needs it. This is the policies we need to go for. Thank you, John Oliver, for advocating for this. You had the Congressman Charlie Rangel, who had four rent-controlled apartments, and he wasn't even hiding it because he was using one as his office. It's illegal to have more than one rent-controlled apartment. This guy had four while he was a representative, and he was so bold about it, he would have people meet him in his office, which was a rent-controlled apartment. All these programs do is incentivize the people who get in early to cling onto these apartments, and as they make more money over time, like most of us, they end up being welfare for the rich that's what john oliver is advocating for in this segment they also create corrupting incentives for the landlords to let their property go into disrepair either to get tenants out or because they can't afford to manage them it also leads to an increase in office space building which is why new york and many other cities with rent control regulations as strict as new york or near as strict as new york always have a surplus of office space rentals because it is cheaper to have vacant office space than some of these apartments which fall into disrepair and get destroyed consistently by these tenants. Because I don't know if you know this, a lot of the people who are broke who get these properties don't treat them very well. I know people who work in commercial real estate. I visited a ton of these rent-stabilized apartments through the lottery system just to check them out. And they're always unbelievably nice because they're new buildings, but also so damaged in ways you can't possibly imagine because the people who rent these buildings are of exceedingly low character, typically. And by the way, since John Oliver showed us a segment with an evil, mean landlord, I will show you a segment of a tenant who killed his landlord because he's a scumbag. Landlord shoved down the stairs by a tenant when he went to collect the rent. That tenant is now under arrest tonight. I would just report Lucy Yang at 115th, 15th Precinct Station House in Jackson Heights. The video is so shocking, we will not show the moment his head smashes onto the concrete. We didn't expect this to ever happen. It's like a dream, you know, a nightmare. 
71-year-old Edgar Moncayo was simply trying to collect rent from one of his tenants Sunday afternoon. We're told the renter had missed at least a month's payment, had given the landlord problems, and was threatening to leave without paying. The house is on 102nd Street in Corona, Queens. The grandson says his grandfather had even reduced the rent from 400 to 200 a month to help the tenant. This was his thanks. A shove from the top of the stairs so hard, doctors could not save the 71-year-old grandfather. Now, these are both anecdotes. They don't mean anything. But I did want to compare and contrast somebody who was paying $400 for rent in the city of New York, who got a discount to $200, murdering a landlord, a family landlord who owns a small building in the city of New York, versus a landlord that clearly and obviously was brought to a point due to a corrupt incentive structure set upon him by the city of New York. Now, they're not representative, a lot of tenants are perfectly fine, but if you think there aren't problem tenants, you don't know what you're talking about. With housing this tight, rents skyrocketing and landlords holding this much power, low-income renters can be left vulnerable to the nightmare scenario, eviction. We've talked about evictions on this show before. They're invasive, traumatizing, and like all the other perils of renting, disproportionately affect black people. So the next thing John Oliver goes into is how bad and evil it is to evict somebody and how it's also, of course, racist. One study of more than a thousand counties found black renters made up around 20% of all adult renters, but nearly a third of all eviction filing defendants. You see, when I hear a number like that, I think, oh, well, I guess black people disproportionately don't pay their rent because it would seem rather odd for somebody to not be a racist, rent to a black person, and then suddenly, for no reason, become racist and then initiate eviction procedures based on the fact that that tenant is black. Did they rent to them anonymously and then knock on the door? They opened the door. They were like, oh, my God, it's a black person. Better initiate eviction protocol 66. Or was it possibly due to the behavior of the tenants that we're talking about this never factors into any of the analysis by john oliver because he is solely a racism of the gaps guy he saw a gap therefore he filled it with racism so if black people are getting evicted more that can't possibly be due to the fact that there's a difference in behavior that has to solely be due to the fact that there was racism that didn't affect them while they were renting the apartment but definitely affected them after they stopped paying rent for the apartment because we all know it is the essence of white privilege to not be able to pay your rent and still live there because that's normal. So what can we do about it? Well, there are some small things that we could pass. Um, we could pass rent stabilization laws uh, and, and laws that prohibit discrimination against recipients of housing choice vouchers and make it easier for landlords to accept them. We could also pass laws mandating the sealing of most eviction records and give people a right to counsel in housing court. That alone can have massive impact. And finally, his major proposals are as follows. Make the eviction process harder, allow people to have an automatic free attorney if they face eviction, seal eviction notices, thus making future landlords not be able to know whether or not you had to have been evicted from your previous apartment because, you know, we need to lower the information that landlords have and make it easier for people to not pay their rent and get away with it and repeatedly scam other landlords due to their bad behavior because that's what it's all about and that's definitely going to lead to more affordable housing. That's not going to lead to people charging more to compensate for the lack of information in order to better deal with the fact that these people could have horrible histories of destroying apartments and being evicted, and you're not allowed to know it in John Oliver's world, and of course, rent stabilization. Even though it creates the very same incentives that John Oliver outlined earlier, which is for landlords to destroy their own property in order to get people out so that hopefully they could turn it into something else, sell it, rebuild it, 
or whatever because the rent stabilized rent over time just becomes too low. Now, before you guys say in the comments of this video that I'm just a scumbag who's defending slumlords because I'm an evil bad person and I'm rich because I got all that keto with justice money, therefore that definitely makes me a rich person because that's how that works, I want you to ask yourself this question. Why is it that slumlords are known media figures in New York, Chicago, and all these major cities that happen to have rent control and rent stabilization? This is because not being able to afford through the rents to take care of your property can often be misread as malice and hate by the so-called slumlord, when in reality, it's just that these laws and regulations over time make these properties unaffordable. It is no coincidence that the number of properties just abandoned by the landlord and taken over by the city of New York spiked dramatically after they implemented these rent control and rent stabilization regulations. It's because they disincentivize landlords providing the service of apartments to prospective tenants. Oh, and by the way, if you want to contrast this to something, look at the city of Houston. One of the fastest growing cities in the United States of America has absolutely no zoning regulations and it's consistently in the top five most affordable cities in the United States, despite their increasing population. In fact, even with the shock of the pandemic, increasing housing prices 21%, the average house in the city of Houston, still around 260k. That's with a 21% increase. The average salaried position in the state of Houston is about $53,000, meaning that the average salary position worker can afford a decent house within the city of Houston, and that's not even the number one city on this list from Texas. Dallas comes in at number three, and it's even more affordable. On top of that, Fort Worth, way nicer than Dallas, right near Dallas, also cheaper than Dallas. It's not included in this because it's not considered a major city, but that's also something to consider. The fact of the matter is, all these affordable housing regulations, all the policies advocated for by John Oliver, are examples of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. If you get one of these units, if you get in early, then your rent is locked in with minimal increases in perpetuity. You benefit a ton, and you lobby and advocate for your position over and over again until the end of time. However, if you don't get one of these, what ends up happening is less buildings are built because people are afraid that they will eventually be moved into the rent control or rent stabilization category, and you pay higher prices because of that, and you're paying higher prices to compensate within the same buildings as the people who are getting the discount rent in perpetuity. So in the same building, in the same block, in the same area, you're all paying in higher rents due to the fact that we're reserving these buildings for people who often, over time, hold on to these buildings and apartments for so long that they become wealthy. So some of the richest people in the United States of America in the cities like New York are paying some of the lowest rent in some of the most luxurious areas just because people like John Oliver still don't understand this is a terrible idea. And to give you a great idea about how out of touch and idiotic this man actually is, he actually referenced the right to housing in South Africa as a positive step for people in the United States to move into. What we really need to do is fundamentally change our mindset away from simply hoping that we can tinker around the edges of housing policy and the private market will sort the rest of this shit out because we've tried that for decades and yet here we are. Instead, we need to agree housing is a human right. And that is not actually just some empty slogan like Subways Eat Fresh or Gatorade's <laughs> Is It In You, which, looking back, was very, very weird. <laughs> 
This can actually be policy. Many countries, including France, Scotland, and South Africa, have legally codified a right to housing. South Africa does have a right to housing in their constitution, which is idiotic because South Africa has even worse housing shortages than in the United States because it's a right, and whenever the government guarantees something, there's always going to be even more distortions and problems and quality issues, and it turns out the biggest slumlord in South Africa, just like the biggest slumlord in the city of New York, is the government in those respective areas. The New York City housing areas are horrible in every way. They're jokes. There's new segments over and over again about how they don't have hot and cold water. But you want these people to manage housing? That's insane. John Oliver, you're garbage. You're out of touch. You don't know how anything works. And you're a scumbag. And you undercut your own premises in your own segment. But hey, those are just my thoughts. Let me know your thoughts down in the comments below. If you like this video, you show them by leaving a like. Subscribe for more content. Follow me on all my social media. Support me via the support links in the description box of this video. This has been me talking about John Oliver failing on rent control. Till next time.